Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. I just want to start by saying thank you to everyone here uh, that was here last week that got one of those blue bags and brought them in. And if you're a first-time guest or you missed last week, please don't, don't feel bad. Last week what we did is we actually handed out reusable grocery bags with a grocery list in them and asked everybody that was here to say, hey, will you bring this back next week? Because our goal is to prepare 75 Thanksgiving meals for families of students that go here to West Frederick Middle School. And what's really cool is we did that last year and uh, there's a food pantry that's actually in this school. And so last year when we checked that out, there's about 15 or 20 items on the shelves that were downstairs. And so this morning we went in to like reorganize it, prepare for, for what you all are going to bring. And there's like 200 items. And what's really cool is like those are still there from the generosity of this church last year. And which really, during the third song, I was like, well, I'm going to go see what the table looks like. And if you came at all like a few minutes into service, you'll see that there are more bags full of more food than what this pantry will even know what to do with. And that is a really good thing. So I just want to say thank you guys for doing that. <clears throat> The other thing, the other reason why I love this church is because like we, we set the bar at 75 because like, oh, that's going to be really challenging. And you guys were like, ha, do more. And so for us, one thing I love about this church is that you all in your generosity and the way you love this city actually challenges us to take a step up. And so we know that we did 75 this year, but we're able to look at the bags out there and go, okay, what does it look like to do 100 meals next year? So thank you for being a, a group of people that really pushes us to do more and to do more and to do more and not just settle on what we think we can get by with, but trust uh, you and trust God. And, and this week there'll be families that have a full Thanksgiving because of what you guys do. And, 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 and I recognize that we won't, I won't even get to meet them. There's a few teachers here that are helping us facilitate, um, but there are families who have a different Thanksgiving because there's a church that meets in the school on Sunday mornings that loves them. So thank you guys for doing that. About four years ago, I was gifted two tickets to see the Orioles play the Red Sox at Camden Yards on a Sunday night. It was toward the end of the season, and both teams were actually fighting for a playoff spot, so the atmosphere was electric. To make the game even more exciting, there's a ton of bad blood between the teams because Manny Machado uh, over-aggressively slid through second base and took out their captain, Dustin Bedroya, early on in the season. ESPN was even in town to broadcast it because it was game of the week. And so we got there a few hours early, we grabbed a beer, grabbed some Boog's barbecue, and as we walked around the stadium, there were Red Sox fans everywhere. They were infesting the park. Yes, infesting. Because Red Sox fans, as we all know, are wicked annoying. When the game started, the crowd and the teams were extra chippy. One Boston fan was screaming at an Orioles fan to our right. There's another Orioles fan who threw a beer at a Boston fan because he stole a foul ball from him. And so you could feel this tension in the air as this game was going on. But by the time the, la the later innings rolled around, the Orioles had a sizable lead. And you could tell the game was trending toward us winning. And so it's eighth inning, like the Orioles are up to bat, like we already have the lead. But the stadium is actually still packed. Orioles fans wanted to stay to experience the win. Red Sox fans needed a few innings to sober up before they drove back up north. And so while this is happening, you start to hear on the other side of the stadium, there's some chanting. Knowing Orioles fans, I assumed it was about the Red Sox, and it got louder and louder. The fans were not all synced up yet, so the only thing I could hear was, ah, ah, suck, ah, ah, suck. And we're like, well, it has to be the Red Sox, right? So it gets louder and louder, and it becomes clearer and clearer before finally this whole stadium breaks out with, Yankees suck, Yankees suck. It was awesome. There's 45,000 people who aren't cheering for or against the teams that are playing. Instead, they are chanting Yankees suck as loud as they could. 
This went on for the entire inning. And then when the Red Sox recorded the final out, the whole crowd let out a huge cheer. It was so bizarre. Not, Red, or Red Sox fans and Orioles fans are laughing. Some are hugging each other. We're like all high-fiving each other like we just did something wonderful. It was awesome. And even though the Red Sox and Orioles are rivals and they're middle, in the middle of fighting for their playoffs, they could all agree on one thing, their hatred of the Yankees. Today we're in week three of our series called Unleash. And the idea is this, we want to see the power of God unleashed in our lives. And the way that that happens is through walking in obedience to him by trusting what the Bible teaches and living our lives accordingly. And in this series, we're specifically talking about what it looks like when it comes to our finances. And we've talked about how being in debt makes us slave to the lender and God doesn't want us to carry those burdens. We've talked about being generous versus just giving because there's a big difference between those two things. And today we're going to talk about keeping our possessions in perspective. In case you haven't noticed lately, there are very few topics in this world that everyone agrees on. It was shocking enough to have 45,000 fans unite in their hatred of the Yankees. Because there really is just a small number of things that everybody you encounter will agree on. But one thing I think that everybody in our culture hates is greed. We may define greed differently. We may debate about who is greedy and who is not greedy, but everyone in our culture would say that they hate greed. Last Christmas, a story came out that touched people's hearts. Kate, Kate McClure was driving home in Philadelphia when her car ran out of gas on an on-ramp. Realizing she didn't have enough money, a homeless man named Johnny Babbitt actually took out his last $20, walked to the gas station to fill up one of the containers to walk back to help Kate. Do any of you guys remember this story? Yeah, it made its way all through the internet. They were, they were interviewed on Good Morning America, all this stuff. After getting home, Kate wanted to pay it forward, so she shared her story on social media, and it immediately went viral. And so Kate took that opportunity to create a GoFundMe in hopes of helping Johnny get back on his feet. When the campaign ended, they had raised $367,108. It was incredible. This summer, though, if you follow the story, things got a little bit complicated. Johnny Bobbitt and Kate McClure, as well as her boyfriend, whose name is Mark, claimed that the majority of the cash from the GoFundMe didn't actually end up with Johnny. So what ended up happening is they started to dig in. They realized that Kate and Mark actually used the money. They bought another car. They went on multiple vacations. And they used this GoFundMe money for themselves. You know, and when that came out this summer, immediately people were thinking, that's so messed up, right? Like, how messed up is that? I think we'd all agree that Kate and Mark are greedy, Right? They took the money that was originally intended for Johnny for his good deed, and they used it for themselves. And we'd all agree, we don't like that. So what if I told you the story took another twist? On Friday, Johnny, Kate, and Mark were all indicted because the whole story was made up. Johnny was homeless, but he never helped Kate. It was not a chance encounter. It was actually all planned. Kate and Mark found Johnny panhandling on the side of the road, and together they concocted this whole plan. And the thing is, they almost got away with the entire thing, but then greed stepped in. There was greed from them on the, in the beginning, but then Johnny wanted more. He felt like he didn't get his fair share, so he actually called the cops and threatened to sue them. And in investigating what happened, the police found out that the whole thing was a lie. And this is terrible. If you heard the first story, your heart's like broken right now, and I'm sorry. And we all agree that we don't like this. No one would look at them and think that they are people of integrity. No one would think that they are smart or cunning. No one would defend them for doing what they, what they did because we agree that greed is not okay. But we have to be careful. We live in a capitalistic society, which is good because we have free choice. But we also have to be on guard because so much of our world wants to suck us into a consumeristic mindset. 
One of the reasons we chose to talk about generosity in November is because we're approaching a season where we pretend that consumerism is magical. In fact, the chaos begins in a few days. Thursday is Thanksgiving, we'll eat great food, spend time with family, watch the Redskins beat the Cowboys again. <laughs> and then before we are finished with dessert, people will head out to find deals on goods that they wouldn't have bought otherwise, but they're on sale, so we just have to have them, right? Black Friday used to be just Friday. Now it starts before Thanksgiving and goes all weekend. When online companies saw the success, they invented another fake day called Cyber Monday. Nonprofits got in that too, it's like, let's do Giving Tuesday. And if we are not careful, we can fall into a trap of greed and not even notice, right? We all hate greed, but during this time of year, we tend to ignore it. We look past it. We try to balance it out with a good deed, or we even just straight up accept it. So I want us to learn from Jesus on how to guard against greed. Because we don't want to be known for greed and selfishness. We want to be known for our faith and our hope and our love. And hopefully the overflow of those characteristics are seen in how we are generous. And so the story today that we're looking at is in Luke 2. And here's what Luke wrote. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And here's the thing. Here's what stands out to me in this story. Jesus says, guard against every kind of greed. See, we have this tendency to think of greed as like this big topic, and we lump all forms of greed into one, but Jesus tells us there's actually multiple ways that we can struggle with greed. And if you search the Bible and you search greed in there, you will find that there are four main types of greed that we are told to guard against. Now, before we dive in, I'm going to warn you that I'm going to step on your toes a little bit. That's pretty normal here at Collective. But I'm not calling you out. I don't really know how you handle your money. I don't know if you're greedy. I don't know if you are generous. I'm simply going to present what the Bible says. And if you feel guilty, that's Jesus, not me. And you have two options. You can deal with the way you feel and you can take steps forward in generosity or you can cross your arms and pout. But the reality is that is up to you. So let's dive in. The first type of greed that we're gonna talk about is hoarding. James 5 says this, look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Quick side note, James is super depressing. Like if you ever read the book of James, like this is how he functions the whole way through it. He's a pretty dark dude. He's not the life of the party, says really good things. You just got to filter that. And he continues, he says, your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. What James is doing, he's calling out people who have kept money for themselves instead of acting justly with those who work for them. He's calling out people for hoarding. He's saying, hey, that's not yours. Like you've decided it's yours. You decided you want a pile of it. You decided to keep it all together. And James is saying like that, that will eventually come back to get you. Have any of you ever watched the show Hoarders? A few of you, okay. You guys are more like willing to say that than first service versus like I'm not admitting that I watched that show. <laughs> to be honest, I've seen bits and pieces of a ton of episodes, but every time I watch the show, it just makes me feel 
incredibly uncomfortable. Like, I can't get through the whole thing. There's a maze of stuff in their house. There's trash from 20 years ago that they can't get rid of. Stacks of newspapers, which to me is alarming. I don't even know where you get newspapers anymore, let alone stacks of it in their house. There's animals, and they're everywhere. Some are alive, some not so much. But that's, that's what happens on this show. That's what you experience. The most famous hoarders of all time are a set of brothers named Homer and Langley Collier. After their parents' death, the two lived in seclusion in their Harlem home, where they obsessively collected books and furniture, musical instruments, and medical supplies that they could find. Afraid that people would break in and steal their possession, they actually rigged their house with booby traps. Every entrance in their house was a way to harm someone that they thought was breaking in. For decades, they never left the house except for the occasional excursion after midnight to collect items found on the street and in dumpsters. In March of 1947, an anonymous tip came into the police that one of the brothers had actually died. And so when they searched the home, they found Homer's body, but they couldn't find Langley. And so a nationwide manhunt went out. The FBI kept searching, trying to figure out where did he go? Did he play a role in this? What happened to Langley? After months, they couldn't find him, and they began to remove the items from the home. At the end of the day, they found 120 tons of stuff in that house. That's 240,000 pounds. While doing that and taking all the stuff out, they actually found Langley under a pile of newspapers. He was killed after his own booby trap set off and crushed him. And here's the thing, like that's the extreme version, right? We watch the show because we, we say, well, that's the, I like watching the show because that's, that's not me. We like to set the bar as this type of story. But the reality is we do that, it's just a little bit less extreme. And the issue is we actually try to justify it, right? Like some of us struggle with this and so we watch hoarders because we're like, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I don't have 700 cats, right? But we try to use that to justify what we do. But I know people that rotate different sets of clothes. They have so much clothes, they actually rotate them in and out of their parents' house depending on the season. They don't have enough space in their own home for their clothing. I know, I've heard stories and I know people that have so much stuff, big house, three-car garage, big basement, and they own multiple storage units just to hold all their junk. And so the thing is, we have to be careful of hoarding. We may not be as extreme as the television shows, but we still have a tendency to do that. The second type of greed is overspending. That's spending money that you don't have. Proverbs 15, 27 says, greed brings grief to the whole family. People have a ton of different ways that they overspend. People have a tendency of overspending specifically when it comes to food. You know, you spend all your money eating out, but you have some friends that are going out for drinks and you don't want to turn them down, so you spend money that you might not have. We overspend when it comes to clothing and entertainment. We overspend when it comes to our houses and our cars and vacations, right? Like we know what we can afford, but we always get the thing that's one a little bit better, right? That's, that's overspending. Here's something that overspenders say. They'll say, I just saved $100, right? You know this person. Some of this, this is you, okay? And that's okay. We're working on it. But people will say, I saved $100, and because you also want to save $100, you're like, okay, let me ask you, let me, let me see how this happened. Then what they do is they proceed to tell you that they were at Target on Black Friday, they saw a TV that was originally $700, but they bought it for $600, and they want you to be proud of them. But the reality is, they didn't even need another TV. That's overspending. Overspending typically means running up your credit cards because you're spending money that you don't really have. Overspending means instead of having a savings account, you spend it before it ever becomes saved. Overspending means you make purchases based on being left out or based on emotions instead of logic. Overspending is a type of greed. The third type of greed is entitlement. James 4 says, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. 
You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Now, if you want to experience entitlement, hang out at Starbucks for a while. Uh, I've mentioned this before. I spent a ridiculous amount of time at Starbucks getting work done, and because of that, I've just seen some weird stuff. I'm there most days. Recently, I was sitting at one of the tables right by the cash register, and I overheard a grown man yelling at one of the baristas about his drink. Now, it took me a few seconds to realize what was going on, whether he was just a loud talker, they're grinding coffee, whatever it may be. But then I realized, and I heard him explain that what he ordered wasn't right. So he ordered a grande, extra hot, 180 degrees to be exact, no water, non-fat chai with two extra pumps of vanilla, one shot of espresso in a venti cup. But they actually gave him a grande, extra hot, 180 degrees to be exact, no water, non-fat chai with two extra pumps of vanilla, one shot of espresso in a grande cup. And he believed that this was unacceptable and he wanted a free drink. And he's trying to tell this person who's doing her very best and the story is always crowded and there's a drive-through through it. She's doing everything she can. He's trying to tell her that he is entitled to a free drink because they put it in a different cup. That's entitlement. Some of you order drinks like that. Please don't yell at your baristas. Here's what else entitlement looks like. It's refusing to buy clothes that aren't a specific name brand. It's refusing to buy your groceries at Aldi. Now listen, some of you are thinking that I'm entitled because I hate Aldi. I hate it. This isn't the case. I love cheap groceries, but I don't like Aldi because it's a cult where you have to have a special quarter to get your shopping cart and everybody walks the same way. And if you don't bring bags, everyone judges you. That's why I don't like Aldi. It's not entitlement. It's a weird place to shop, okay? I can soapbox Aldi all day. It's a weird problem that I have. But entitlement is refusing to buy anything other than Mac. It's having to make a scene at a restaurant if a waiter messes up your order. Dave Ramsey points out that most people in their 20s want the lifestyle of their parents, but most people in their 20s don't want it to take 35 years. And listen, I'm sorry that a lot of you have parents that didn't know the difference between need and want. We mentioned this last week. A lot of you are financially in the place you are because of what you weren't taught or bad habits that you were taught. We talked to parents last week about set the culture now with your kids, right? Get them out of the gap that you're in. So I'm sorry that you've been put in this place, but I'm also sorry that every sport you played growing up gave you a participation trophy, right? You aren't entitled to anything. You're not, we're not. Let's go back to the story in Luke because this goes back to the beginning. Luke 12, he says, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. The man who speaks up is upset over an estate that he didn't earn. He didn't have to work for it. His father did. But he feels like he's entitled to half of it simply because he's in the will or he's the son of a man who worked really hard to give that estate value. That's entitlement. He did nothing to deserve it. And yet he's going to Jesus saying, I want half. I want what's mine. The fourth type of greed that we struggle with is comparison. Proverbs 14.30 says, jealousy is like cancer to the bones. One of the guilty pleasures in our house is HGTV. We love HGTV, and our favorite show is Fixer Upper. Don't judge me. (laughs) Ray and I are both convinced that if we met Chip and Joe in real life, that we would be best friends. We love watching the show and seeing how messed up the house is before the renovation. We love Demo Day. I just love the idea of Demo Day, right? Like, wouldn't we all love that if just, like, in the middle of the week we could take a hammer and just, like, destroy things? We love the transformation, we love it all. But every time we watch this show, I like my house a little less. We don't have a farmhouse sink. We don't have any shiplap. We don't have a pergola in our backyard. And apparently if you move to Waco, Texas, you can buy a house for $120 and get someone to renovate it for 50 and live happily ever after. 
And I hate to admit it, but when we binge watch Fixer Upper, Ray and I start to slip into this comparison trap. And then what I do is I head to Target and I stand in the Magnolia session in the middle of the store and I just start putting things in my cart because I feel like that's what I need. <laughs> I don't, I don't. It's so expensive, man. But comparison is always eyeing your neighbor's car, the coworker's outfit or a friend's vacations. What that is, is that's greed. So let's look at the list. Let's look at the whole thing. Hoarding, overspending, entitlement, and comparison. And I really want you to think about which one of these you struggle with the most. Because at some point in our life, we struggled with all of them, right? Different seasons, different times. Right now, it might be different than how you felt this summer. But we all struggle with this, right? Like none of us can say that this isn't a piece of our life. But the question is, which one right now do you struggle with the most? I know for me, I struggle with comparison. Although I joke about how fixer-upper makes me feel, I really struggle when I see friends of mine buying houses that are cheaper and better than the one that I have. We have two friends that live in Statesboro, Georgia, which if you've ever been to Statesboro, there's nothing. There's literally nothing there. There's a college and a Zaxby's, which if you've ever been to Zaxby's, you know it might be worth it. But their house looks like it came straight out of a magazine. Everything they own is beautiful. Everything they own looks handmade. And every time my wife and I, we go visit, we're jealous. He's a pastor. She works in a school. They have a kid. Our lives are so similar. But the crazy thing is that I compare myself to people who live in Georgia. Like that's not healthy right? Like we do, that's what Facebook does for us. And the thing is, if they lived here and they had the same jobs, they'd live in the house that looked just like mine. But I still slip into this cycle of comparison. So here's a point. We all struggle with greed. We all do, we, every single one of us. And we love to point out rich people who we think are greedy. And maybe they are greedier than we are, but if we are not careful, greed is a cancer that will destroy us spiritually from the inside out. That's why Jesus says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Now let's go back to the story in Luke, because it actually continues. In Luke 12, the story continues. This is what it says. Then he, meaning Jesus, told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have enough room, or I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Now, before you read the story and you start to think that this guy is just trying to be a good steward or this guy is just saving, that's not actually what he's doing. He's hoarding. And the reason why we know that is because it's all about him, right? It's all about him and what he wants and what he wants to do and how he wants to move forward. That's hoarding. And so what Jesus does, he wraps up this story in Luke 12. He says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich Toward God. The person, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself but isn't rich toward God is a fool. Now, he isn't saying that saving is bad. Saving's good. Providing is good. But it does say that if you store up earthly wealth and that's all you've got, you're a fool. When it comes to your possessions and your money, the most important thing is that it's not all about you. It's generosity. It's being rich toward God. In fact, this is something that Jesus talked about so much. Money is the number one talked about topic in scripture, right? And so we have this tension when churches talk about, but the reality is Jesus talked about more than anything else. We have to talk about this. And the thing is we love what Jesus teaches when it comes to grace. We love what Jesus teaches when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to relationships, but when it comes to money, we're like, okay, back away, right? Jesus knows this. And this is why he says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. 
You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. He's saying it's either God or money. He's really giving us two choices. You can't serve both. You can't love both. You cannot obey both. So here's my question. How do you know that you're not enslaved to money? How do you know that you're not greedy? How do you know that you're not sick with a cancer that's eating you from the inside out? How do you know that you're not a fool? Because I mean, I know personally, I don't know if I'm greedy, sometimes I struggle with it, but how do you know? And scripture teaches us it's actually really easy. It's whether or not you are generous. The antidote to, antidote to greed is generosity. Not that you just give, but that you're actually generous. It's who you are, it's a culture in your life. It's thing, something that you do every single day. The antidote to greed is generosity. Now listen, the whole point of this series is to help you be generous, that's it. The goal is for you to be rich toward God because I want you to be free from greed. I want you to keep possessions in perspective. I want you to experience everything that Jesus has to, has to offer. And the antidote to greed is generosity. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you know that generosity begins at the tithe. And if you're someone that already does that, awesome. You should be very proud of yourself for obeying in that way because your obedience is unseen in most churches. I said this two weeks ago, out of every 5,000 people, five people that say they follow Jesus give 10%. That's a terrible stat, it just is. And so if you are one of those people, you should feel good about that. But my main goal is to get people that are here that follow Jesus to the baseline of generosity, that every household in this church would take this step. And listen, let me say this. There's a message out there that some Christians say is based on scripture and it's not based on scripture. They will teach you that you give to get. Right, you've heard this, but you give to get. You give to get blessings. You give to get security. You give to get wealth. But when you think about it, this can't be true because it's still based on greed because in the end, it's about you. Jesus doesn't teach you that you give to get. Jesus teaches you that you give to give. And think about Christmas. If someone gives you a present and you find out that the only reason they gave you something is so that you could give them something in return, you would think that's messed up. And I'm pretty sure if you're giving to God so you can get something from God, he already knows the condition of your heart. He already knows what's going on. You don't give to get, you give to give. We've said this series is called Unleashed and it's based on Exodus 14, 31. It says this, when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and his servant Moses. But one thing we haven't done in this series, I actually haven't told you the, the culmination of this verse. So let me tell you that right now. So here's the context. 3,000 years ago, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. Daily, they cried out to God as they were oppressed, beaten, and worked tirelessly, tirelessly by their slave drivers. And God hears their cry. And so what God does is he presents himself to a guy named Moses and he tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and demand that he let your people go. Demand that he lets the Jewish people go. But Pharaoh refuses. So what God does, he says, okay, I'm gonna twist his arm a little bit. I'm gonna show him that I'm God. And so God sends nine plagues on Egypt, but, but Pharaoh is still stubborn. The Bible actually says that his heart hardened and he would not let the people go. It actually got worse. So God, again, okay, we're gonna have to take it to another level because my people will experience freedom. He's fighting for the freedom of his people. So God tells Moses to spread this message. He says to tell everybody that God is going to come through Egypt on a certain night and kill every firstborn son in every household in the whole, in the whole country. But then he tells them, here's how you can avoid it. It's not for everybody. Here's how you can not experience that. If you take a lamb, kill it, 
and take the blood and put it on the doorframe of the house, God will pass over that house and everyone inside of it will be unharmed. By the way, that's the reason why we call Jesus the Lamb of God, because he's the perfect sacrifice for us. His blood shed for us on the cross is what gives us life for all time, so we don't have to pay the penalty of our sin, which is death. It's a shout out back to the story in the Old Testament where they had to use a lamb. Jesus says, I'm that lamb now. You don't need to worry about that. So what happens in the story is that people who are humble and obedient listen to God and they do this. But some people still have hard hearts and they refuse to, refuse to listen and their firstborn sons die. And there's weeping and wailing in Egypt. And so Pharaoh goes and he grabs Moses in the middle of the night and he tells him to get the Israelites out of Egypt. He finally says, okay, get them out of here, move on. And that's what they did. And so for the first time in hundreds of years, the Israelites are free people. They followed Moses as God led them to the Red Sea. But when they got there, they were getting ready to set up camp. That's when Pharaoh changed his mind. Sometime in the middle of the night, Pharaoh decided, I don't want these people to go. I really prefer them as slaves. So go back and get them. And so Pharaoh's army, what they do is they, they get together and they go to try and find and attack the Israelite people. And they eventually pin them against the Red Sea. And so God actually sends a protecting wall of fire to separate the army from the people. But the Israelites are now trapped. They're trapped between the wall of fire and the Egyptians, and then the other side is the Red Sea. They begin to ask Moses, what are we going to do? They begin to ask Moses, are we going to die? Is this the end for us? So Moses turns to God, and God says to Moses, stretch out your staff over the Red Sea, and during the night I'm going to send a strong east wind so that in the morning there's a path of dry ground through the Red Sea. And he continues to tell Moses, you will need to lead the people through that to the other side. This is what you're going to have to do. And that's what happened the next morning. The people marched through the Red Sea. When they got to the other side, the fire had disappeared and Pharaoh's army started to chase them again. They too were also on the path through the Red Sea and the Israelites again were afraid, but God spoke. He told Moses, lift your hands above the sea and I'll make you go back into place. And so that's what Moses did and the entire Egyptian army drowned. And this story is a scary and very powerful demonstration of who God is. And to culminate this story, it says this, when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. And this is a crazy story. And some of us are gonna have tension with this story, but here's the thing I want you to see. They had to walk in obedience before the power of God could be unleashed. And this is really important. If they hadn't walked in obedience through the Red Sea, if they were too afraid that it was going to collapse on them at any moment, if they were too afraid to get caught by the Egyptians, if they were too afraid that they would die, if they had never walked that path, they never would have gotten to the other side to see how amazing and powerful God can be. They had to walk in obedience before they could see the power of God unleashed. See, God has a power that's completely independent of them, but they wouldn't have seen it if they didn't obey. And the whole point of this series is that you would see the power of God by submitting to him in obedience. And you know this, and I know this, the two ways that our culture disobeys God more than anything else is sex and money. And so in this series, we're saying, God, we're going to submit to you so that we can see your power unleashed in our life. And while we're talking about finances and money and generosity, this principle isn't just true about money. If you want to see the power of God unleashed in your marriage, walk in obedience by showing humility toward your spouse. If you want to see the power of God unleashed in your workplace, walk in obedience by working hard and with integrity. If you want to see the power of God unleashed in your dating, walk in obedience, stop hooking up, right? If you want to see that, delete the app. If you want to see that, walk in obedience to what God teaches. 
But for us in this series, we're talking about giving. And Jesus says, if you're not rich toward God, you are a fool. So we are trying to give you a chance to walk in obedience. That's our goal with this series. And listen, our church is not in any type of desperate need. Our budget is tracking in the right direction. This isn't about collective. This is about you. But can you imagine the impact our church could have if every single person who said they followed Jesus gave a tithe? The last two years, we've packaged 10,000 meals for food insecure kids in our county. And that's with the church that we have right now. But imagine if as a church, we were more generous. How many more tens of thousands of meals could we pack? How many more kids could we impact? There's 500 kids in this school. We can't impact all of them. And that's part of the limitations that we have. But what if we trusted God and we unleashed God to do what only he could do? And at the baseline of that is the tithe. If moving forward, we would be able to have our own space and create more room for people to bump into Jesus. Now, we love West Frederick Middle School. We do. But we recognize that there's limitations in this space. We know that we can only do two services here. And so the reality is we have to start thinking ahead. What could God do if we had something that was our own? How many more people could come into this place? How many more kids could be back in Collective Kids? How much easier could we make this church experience if, at the baseline, people who followed Jesus gave a tithe? We'd be able to start more churches locally and globally. We have the pleasure of partnering with Haiti on one church, but anybody who spent time with Pepe or that team knows they need to keep doing that. Their biggest issue is finances. What could we do to help them? Our goal, and what I want you to see, is I want you to walk in obedience. Scripture teaches if you're a follower of Jesus, that means a tithe. A tithe means you give 10%. You give to God first. When we read Scripture, generosity is always first. It's always about giving to God first. First fruits, first child, it's always first. You don't go through the fridge and give God your leftovers. It means giving cheerfully. If you can't give cheerfully, you need to think twice about it. We've said this through this entire series. If I am frustrating you, if you are mad at me, don't give. Don't give. We'd rather have you not give because you're you know, upset or frustrated with me. We'd rather give, you give cheerfully because you trust God, not because we're talking about it, right? And so if you feel that way, don't do it. And I understand that some of you are nervous about trusting God with your finances because in reality, you want God to get you across the Red Sea without walking through the water, right? You want God to just pick you up and transplant you on the other side. You don't wanna have to walk through. You don't wanna look behind. You just want God to fix it just like that. And you're nervous that the water is gonna rush back in. You're afraid that you won't make it to the other side. You want a sign ahead of time that says everything will be okay, that you'll still be able to pay your bills, that something terrible won't happen, you won't end up in debt. But you have to take a step in obedience before the power of God can be unleashed. And at the end of the day, this is all about Jesus. If you want to know why you can trust God, it's because he would give up everything he had so that you can have a relationship with him. Jesus died on a cross to prove that he is trustworthy. He proved that you can trust him. If you are waiting for that transplant to put you on the other side, if you're waiting for that sign, the sign is a God who loves you so much that he gave everything he had so that you could have grace and so that you could have forgiveness. That is the sign. That tells you you'll be okay. Jesus died on a cross to prove that he's trustworthy, to prove that he loves you, to prove that he is here for you that he wants what's best for you, that he wants to offer you grace. He died on a cross for you. Second chances are real. You can be forgiven and have a better future. But just as the Israelites would not have seen God's power if they hadn't obeyed, you will not experience God's grace if you don't obey. Scripture says that the way you do that is to repent and be baptized. And if you're in this place and you need to take that step, we want you to check off the box in your connection card because we wanna walk you through that process. Because the most important thing about this series it isn't a dollar amount or anything like that. It's about a repentant heart. 
And so the question you have to wrestle with, do you want to see God unleashed in your life? Then what step of obedience do you have to take? What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that, um, that everything about you, everything uh, that you've done is to, to help us live a life that's way better than what we can do on our own. God, whether it's money or, or relationships or just faith in general, God, like you created this, this world the way it is and you gave us a set of instructions that we can walk with that will teach us how to live life to the full, a life that you want for us. God, thank you so much for the grace that you offer us that at the end of the day, it really just comes down to the fact that you want what's best for us because you love us. God, even though we don't deserve it, you still offer it every single day. God, I pray that this, this group, as we wrestle with this idea of, of trusting you, as we wrestle with this idea of generosity, as we wrestle with anything when it comes to you, God, I pray this week is a week where we can take a step forward. God, we know that you're speaking to us. We can feel it. We can hear it. God, help us have the courage to take a step. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.